Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome. I hope it wasn't desire that brought you here. <laughs> well, as you know, the title to tonight's talk is Philosophy and Desire. The subtitle is Are Desires the Eternal Enemy of Man? So to answer that question immediately, I'm going to quote from the book called the Bhagavad Gita. And it says that desires are the constant enemy of the wise. So we could go home now. Have we answered <laughs> answer the question? However, this is not how we ordinarily see it. Yet all the master teachers have advocated freedom from desire. The great commandment of Christianity, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy strength and all thy mind, cannot be fulfilled so long as there is desire. Because if there is desire, then the heart would be shared between God and the desire. So why do the wise say that desire is our enemy? And again, to quote from the Gita, there are two verses. It says, thinking of objects, attachment to them is formed in a man. From attachment, longing, from longing, anger grows. From anger comes delusion, and from delusion, loss of memory. From loss of memory comes the ruin of discrimination. And from the ruin of discrimination, perish. And in order to have some understanding of that, it gives an example. It says, imagine a beautiful image appears. The tendency of the mind is to repeat it in the mind. Then if the image is allowed to recur, a liking grows. With the growth of liking, the wish to come close or to possess appears. Any obstacle to this produces wrath. And the impulse of anger throws the mind into confusion, which casts a veil over the lessons of wisdom learned by past experience. Thus deprived of his moral standard, he is prevented from using his discrimination. And failing in discrimination, he acts irrationally on the impulse of passion and paves the way to moral death. And yet, if offered a chance to change our lives to a desireless state, very few of us would take it. Doesn't sound attractive. In fact, we do not think that it would make us happy. In fact, we believe it would make us less happy than we are now. So let us look at our ordinary experience. The ordinary man or woman enjoys three states. The waking state the dreaming state, and the sleeping state. And the waking state is full of agitation, movement, and desire. And in the dreaming state, the man or woman plays with the impressions of unfulfilled desire. Dream. And the sleeping state, and by that the deep sleep state, the man or woman is desireless. Now, if desires lead to happiness, then to be desireless would lead to misery. But is deep sleep miserable? 
It is desireless. Is it miserable? People don't seem to have a difficulty to get into bed. There's no aversion there. But it seems to be very difficult to get out of bed. Now how come, having tasted deep sleep, there's so much aversion every morning to participating in the waking state? The deep sleep state is desireless. The waking state is full of desire. The experience of deep sleep offers a level of rest, a level of freedom, a level of contentment, a level of bliss, which we can't seem to materialize in our ordinary waking state. Now the wise say that there's another state, there's a fourth state. This is available to man, and it's sometimes called the true waking state. And we'll come back to this later. And the descriptions of this state says that it offers rest, peace, and joy way beyond anything that sleep offers. In fact, limitless rest, limitless peace, and limitless joy. But for so long as there is desire, this state cannot be attained. Desire is the enemy of this state. Therefore, desire is the enemy of true rest, true peace, true joy. Therefore, desire is the enemy of man, because this is what man truly wants. Total rest, peace and joy. Desire enters the house of man as a guest soon becomes a host, finally ends up as the master. The free man is enslaved by his own desires. Now, however, despite the simplicity and truthfulness of this argument, virtually all of mankind dedicates himself or herself to the fulfillment of desire. So how can such a big mistake occur? So if we just look at an ordinary event in the life of a man or a woman, the first stage is desireless, and so therefore the person is happy. The second stage, a desire arises in the being, and with that desire comes discontentment. This leads to the third stage, action, where the person strives towards a particular object to fulfill the desire that has arisen. And the fourth stage is where the object is attained and happiness arises. This happens a hundred times or a thousand times a day. However, the human being makes a terrible mistake. He or she believes that the attainment of the object is what caused him or her to be happy. When he got the object that he desired, he became happy. But he mistakenly thinks that the object made him happy. 
getting the object made him happy. This is not true. With the attainment of object that you desire, desirelessness returns. With desirelessness, happiness returns. It is desirelessness that produces happiness, not the objects you desire. Happiness does not arise from objects, but from a return to desirelessness. You do not have to attain objects to be free from desire. You can simply drop the desire. That will save you all the striving. And we have experience of this. Sometimes we forget a desire. We would desire a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and we think I'm miserable because I don't have my tea or coffee. And somebody engages us in an interesting conversation. We forget that we don't have our tea or coffee. Yet we're happy. Because we've actually dropped the desire. With desirelessness, there's no discontent, no agitation, no striving in the life. Rest is what man ultimately wants, but desires will not let us rest. One gets continuous happiness with desirelessness, not interrupted happiness. Just to repeat, happiness does not arise from any external object. Happiness comes from within. It arises in desirelessness and it's covered in desires. This is the fundamental mistake which causes the human being to pursue his or her desires. I.e. to come to believe that happiness is external to himself. If we do not come to know this to be untrue, we will never, ever, ever be free from desire. We will never, ever, ever be happy. Now, when one develops an attraction for another person or creature or object, there are three fundamental suppositions behind it. The first is that the thing or person is true. The second, that it's likable. The third, that this will make me happy. Now, no sooner does this take place than a chase takes place. Striving emerges to acquire a happiness external to myself. And man, the greatest creature of all, is turned into a beggar and a trader. He becomes a beggar because he's constantly praying or pleading for more. Some pray for wealth some for property, some for health, some for fame, some for power, some for freedom from troubles, some for food and the basic necessities of life. He becomes a trader because he sells himself for objects in return. He even trades his love. So he says, I will love you if you love me. Or I will continue to love you 
if you make me happy. From toys as a child, to education as a youth, to employment as a young man or woman, to promotion as you get older, there is no end to the desires that fill the heart of man. Feeding the desires does not make them go away. In fact, they grow in strength and in number. To feed a desire is like throwing coal on a fire, hoping that it will put it out. Now, how or why do desires arise? Man, in truth, is consciousness, knowledge and bliss. This is what he truly is, and his nature reflects this truth about himself. However, due to identification with his body and mind, he's come to believe that he's limited, because the body is limited and so is the mind limited. So he comes to believe that he is limited, as opposed to limitless. He's come to believe that he's subject to death, when in fact he's eternal. He believes that he's subject to ignorance, when in fact he's all-knowing. That he's subject to happiness and misery, when in fact he's blissful. He comes to believe that he's bound, when in truth he's free. And feeling this incompleteness, the human being desires objects external to himself to make himself complete. Deep down in memory he knows he is complete, but he's confused by the limits of the body and the mind, and he desires to delimit himself by the acquisition of these objects. All the desires of the human being arise from identifying with the body and the mind. In deep sleep, there is no identification with the body and the mind. Deep sleep, there's no knowledge of whether you're male or female, intelligent or stupid, any of these things, because there's no identification with the body and mind. Because there's no identification with the body and mind, there's no desire in deep sleep. All misery is the outcome of desire. That is why there's no misery in deep sleep. And notice, you do not have to satisfy your desires to enjoy bliss in deep sleep. The overdraft still exists while you sleep deeply. But you no longer identify with it. No overdrawn person sleeps. Just a human being. Every bank in the world loses its customer when it goes to sleep. So in deep sleep there's just desirelessness. Not the satisfaction of desire. There's just simple and pure happiness. And in the fourth state available to man, there's that same simple and pure happiness. Well, what are desires? They are the eternal search of man to enjoy his true nature, i.e. consciousness, knowledge and bliss. 
Like his nature, he wants his desires fulfilled totally and permanently. Nobody wants to be partially happy. and Nobody wants to be temporarily happy. We want to be totally happy and we want to be happy forever. But the human being can only desire according to his or her knowledge. So if you're a child, you'll desire a toy. If you ask a four-year-old, what do you want? They won't say, a pension scheme. And if you ask a 60-year-old, he won't say a toy, unless he's suffering from senile dementia. When the child becomes boy or a girl, well then they may want a computer. They don't want the toy anymore. Because now they have knowledge of computer. As a youth, it may be a record or a CD or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. As a young man or a woman, it may be employment, partner. But each human being desires according to his knowledge. Now, if the knowledge is limited or false, then he or she will desire under ignorance. And if one desires under ignorance, then the fruit of that desire will be the fruit of ignorance. Desire is the food of the ego. It's what keeps it alive. And with the ego comes strain, not rest, comes motion, not equanimity, comes excitement and not peace, comes greed and not contentment. Just let us look in greater detail at what the effect of desires under ignorance are in the life of the human being. What is the effect of desire under ignorance on the body? Well, desire puts tension into the body. Say you desire to walk elegantly. What does that do to your walk? Say people are looking at you and you're filled with a desire to walk elegantly as you walk past them. It's like a pregnant duck in pain. <laughs> Say you want to smile naturally. How repulsive it is. Say you desire to hit a golf ball straight and far. You become a caddy. See what desire does to action. When desire is in the man, energy pours out of the body. Think of the first driving lesson. How exhausted you were after it. You only drove about four or five miles. But the body is drained by the experience. Think of shopping. By the time you're halfway down Grafton Street, you need a cup of coffee. That's why Bewley's is halfway down Grafton Street. <laughs> Mr. Bewley knew what he was doing. And ease in the body is replaced by disease. See how relaxed the face of a sleeping person is. Or of a dead person. 
See how unbelievably relaxed the face is. Those tensions are carried for 60 or 70 or 80 years, except in sleep. All that tension is destructive of health. So that's the effect of desire on their ignorance on the body. Well, what about the mind? What effect does desire on their ignorance have on the mind? And I've just taken a selection, which are familiar to me. One is that you're always changing your mind. Like at seven o'clock you say, I will go to bed early tonight. Then you watch that vampire you've seen before I'll do the garden this weekend if you announce it to your wife you pray for rain (laughs) always changing one's mind a second effect is you start jobs which you never finish so difficult to finish it off so difficult to clean the paintbrush. It stays there for years. No thinner will ever restore it to its glory. <laughs> Why? Because you moved on to something else before you finished. My garden is a garden of incomplete efforts everywhere. I start to mow the lawn and then I see rose bush that needs pruning and there's a weed somewhere else. The third effect mentioned here of desire under ignorance and how it affects the mind is that one is unable to attend for very long. Some of you have demonstrated this this evening already. When you didn't laugh at my jokes. (laughs) For how long can you study before you dream up a phone call to make or a cup of coffee to have? When you're driving, how long can you attend to the driving? Would you insure you if you knew how much you dreamt while driving? For how long can you listen? Can you listen to the last word when somebody is speaking? With desire, the mind is split. The split mind is weak like diffused light, and it becomes inefficient. The mind drifts into the past and the future, and rarely stays in the present, where efficiency can only be. The fourth effect of desire under ignorance on the mind is that knowledge is overcome by desire. We know what is right and wrong, but propelled by desire, we ignore the law and think we can get away with it. So we think we can smoke and not get cancer. We think we can leave late and still arrive on time. How much regret in our lives is related to doing what we knew was wrong? We mistake pleasure for happiness and suffer from the revolving wheel of pleasure and pain which inevitably follow each other. Another consequence of the effect of desire under ignorance on the mind 
is that we ignore consequences. We overeat and ignore the consequence of becoming fat. We undereat and we ignore the consequence of doing harm to the body. We overwork and ignore the consequence of doing harm to our relationship. Another effect is that we lie to ourselves, which is a remarkable achievement to deceive yourself. There's only one of you, but you deceive yourself. I've never worked out how it's actually done, but it does happen. So with statements like, I will get up early tomorrow morning and do that work before I go to the office. I would just lie on a bit longer. And I can still make it in time. Once I get X amount of money, then I will cut back. I will retire early. Nobody ever believes those lies, except yourself. And the sixth and last effect is the loss of intelligence or talents when desires invade the mind. Here I'm going to quote from a Chinese sage called Trang Su. It's quoted in the book Awareness by Anthony de Mello. He says, When the archer shoots for no particular prize, he has all his skill. When he shoots to win a brass buckle, he's already nervous. When he shoots for a gold prize, he goes blind, sees two targets and is out of his mind. His skill has not changed, but the prize divides him. He cares. He thinks more of winning than of shooting, and the need to win drains him of power. Well, what about the heart? What effect does desire have on the operation of the heart? Well, the first effect is that it contracts the heart. The normal belief is that desires expand the heart, but in fact desire contracts the heart. And the Shankaracharya, who's the man that the school used to go to, put its question till he died, he says, when one shifts from love to attachment or desire, then there's no concern for other people's knowledge, bliss, health or freedom. All knowledge, all bliss, all health and all freedom is only for himself. Such people do not worry if others are denied knowledge, bliss, health and freedom. Even in small families, one can see individuals denying everything to other members of the family, and they will go to any length to acquire knowledge, bliss, health and freedom for themselves at the cost of others. This is the pathetic situation very common these days. The other effect of desire is that impure emotions begin to dominate the heart. And I've just taken a selection of these. The first impure emotion is dissatisfaction. And again, if I can quote a story that was told to the Shankaracharya. The man said, there is a story about a tramp who slept in Hyde Park and was happy because he always dreamt he was sleeping in the Ritz Hotel. 
someone who was interested in them, booked him a room for the night in the Ritz. Next morning they asked him how he had slept. He said, very badly. I spent the night dreaming I was sleeping on a hard bench in the park. Now you think he's an idiot. That story is about you and me. Shankaracharya answered, he said, the story is very useful in understanding the working of the human mind. It is never satisfied with what it has and always desires something quite different. While a poor man envies the comforts of the rich and wants to be rich too, a rich man is weary of his anxieties and envies the carefree sleep of one who has none. A sick man worries about getting well, only making his sickness worse, while a man in good health worries that he may get ill. The second impure emotion is unbridled ambition. The human being gets a fancy for something, then is ready to go to any length to get it. becomes an ambition or a mission or a crusade. The human being submits to it and sacrifices himself to it. It occupies his body, mind and heart and he will sacrifice all possessions and all relationships for it. With desire in the heart there comes growth of impatience, anger and hatred. One becomes impatient if one's desires are delayed. One becomes angry if one's desires are obstructed. And one learns to hate if our desires are prevented. All anger is desire frustrated. It has no other source. What would Hitler have achieved if he had had no desire for Germany? The deeper the desire, the greater the hate when it's frustrated. Another effect on the heart is that relationships are impaired or destroyed. Love is the natural in-between in any relationship. And when it is so, then there's harmony, unity and peace. But when desire is in-between the two parties, then there's friction, anger, envy, and meanness of heart. And if this becomes excessive, this desire arising between the two people, then it leads to controlling and manipulation of one's spouse or child or property or wealth. With desire going into the heart, there's an increase in suffering. This is two aspects to it. The first is that desire leads to expectation. Whatever you desire, you have an expectation of it. But expectation exaggerates the potential outcome. And this always leads to disappointment. You can cast your mind back as how happy you anticipated you were going to be when you finished the leaving certificate or when you got the results. Well, if you think of the feeling, no matter how good the results were, when you actually got them, it wasn't the same as the expectation. 
Neither is marriage. Neither are children. The second aspect of the increase in suffering is that there will be an increase in grief or sorrow. There's a very harsh law, but it's true. If you desire things that die, then you will surely grieve. There's no escape. So that's all the good news. <laughs> so if we stop there, well, there doesn't seem to be any hope for us. But what about desire under knowledge? We've looked at desire under ignorance. What about desire under knowledge? Well, as the Shankaracharya says, it's easy to fall into a well. It's not so easy to get out of the well. For that, you need help or guidance. And those seeking true and substantial happiness go looking for this help or guidance. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the school, uh, went to meet the Shankaracharya in 1965 to seek his advice and guidance. And the opening statement from the Shankaracharya was this. He says, it's not my desire which has to be carried out. The desire which has to be helped is that which arises in people looking for the truth, wishing to acquire the divine life and to make efforts in that direction. And so far as I can, I will always be ready my door is always open to anyone, known or unknown, Eastern or Western, irrespective of his upbringing or culture, because, in fact, we all come from the same stock. As long as that desire and the decision are strong, permanent and stable, the help will always be available. Well, can there be desire under knowledge? Can desire be of any use to the human being? And again, the Shankaracharya says that the desire of the Absolute, or God, is that all enjoy his nature of consciousness, knowledge and bliss without limit. And man is said to be created in this image, i.e., to reflect consciousness, knowledge and bliss without limit. But having forgotten his true nature, he forms three desires. To live forever, to know everything, and to be happy always. A man also has a natural longing for something better, finer, and brighter, because these are closer to consciousness, knowledge and bliss true nature. So desires which evolve consciousness, knowledge and bliss are not the ones which are the enemy of man. These desires could be said to be the desires of the absolute expressing themselves through man. On the other hand, the desire of the individual creates tension, anger and misery. This certainly is the enemy of man and is to be destroyed. So then we face a question. How do we destroy 
desires under ignorance, which are the enemy of man? And how do we grow desires under knowledge, which are of benefit to man? Well, we immediately face a dilemma, because if desires are indiscriminately fulfilled, then attachment causes them to rise again and again and again. However, if we suppress the desires, and this only produces anger and resentment, which cloud and confuse the mind. So we seem to be in trouble whether we express them or suppress them. So we have to find a way out. And the following is a series of directions which eliminate false desire and allow true desire to grow in man. And the first thing for man, the practice of discrimination. The first thing that he should do is to examine rationally, determine and decide that the acquisition of worldly things will not bring happiness. He or she must come to that answer. Will external objects make me happy or not? Second thing, on the discrimination, that one should review all habitual desires and resolve to abandon through discipline those which are not conducive to one's happiness and freedom. Thirdly, there is a factor within man which helps him. Immediately after a desire arises, there is something within which always prompts one and decides whether such a desire is right or wrong for oneself. One does not have to ask anyone else about it. But because we're normally in a great hurry, because the desire propels us, we override this silent knowledge. What's required is to become aware of this silent knowledge which is there between the desire arising and the action being initiated. There's a silent knowledge which tells you that this desire is right or wrong for you. And fourthly, in order to help discrimination, one should read what the scriptures and the wise say and practice what they advise to see is it true. The second thing that the human being can do to be freed from desires under ignorance and promote desires under knowledge is to practice detachment. And one practices detachment by witnessing the events of life. For example, if a picture is being sold, there will be a seller, and a buyer, and there may be somebody, a seer. The seller is not looking at the picture. His attention is on the bids. The buyer attention is not on the picture. His attention is on the potential acquisition. Only the seer or the witness sees the picture fully and enjoys it fully. The seller and the buyer have a partial view, but the seer sees all, or the witness. 
The second way of practicing detachment is to practice letting go. And there's a story told, which has been told many times, about uh, how you catch monkeys in India, or how they catch uh, monkeys in India, in case you haven't. And what they do is they bury a narrow-necked vase or jar in the ground with the neck of the jar just exposed. And in it they put some sweet meat and the monkey smells the sweet meat and he puts his little hand inside the narrow-necked jar and grabs the sweet meat. But having formed a fist, he can no longer withdraw the fist from the narrow-necked jar. So he screams and screams that he's trapped. And the hunter comes along and takes him. He thinks he's trapped, just has to let go. That's all he has to do, to let go. Well, we have to learn to let go, to release our hold on the events of life which we store in our hearts. We need to learn to forgive, to let the dead bury the dead. So when you become attached, just let go. The third factor which helps in the practice of detachment is to give up the attachment to results. And again, there's a quote from the Bhagavad Gita. And it says, Thou hast the right to work, but not to the fruit thereof. So one should surrender to the activity, respond to the need alone, and move on. You'll notice this with great judges or great surgeons. If a man or a woman is a great surgeon and the patient dies, then their skill is not impaired when they go to operate on the next patient. And if a judge judges somebody, they don't carry anything from the previous trial into the next trial. Nothing is brought forward. Because there's no attachment to the result. So one should be like the lotus, which lives and grows in the water, but never is touched by it. The third practice, which helps to dissolve desires under ignorance, promote desires under knowledge, is to serve others. The fulfilling of your duties to others, rather than claiming your rights, purifies the heart. And your own desires are starved of fulfillment because you're serving others. And this, together with purification, frees one from desire. The fourth is meditation. The practice of meditation. Meditation brings the mind to stillness not only within the practice of meditation, but allows the mind to enjoy stillness outside meditation. And a still mind finds happiness in everything. The second benefit of meditation is that true meditation brings you to a deep bliss. And because of the experience of deep bliss, the craving for lesser pleasures falls away. The enjoyment of the greater always leads to a natural falling away of interest in the less. 
Another practice to help is enlarging the interval between desires. Between each desire, there's a natural interval. Action comes to a rest, and then there's a little space before a desire arises to initiate the next action. However, we're very used to filling up that interval. We don't take the rest. So when you ask people, how did today go? They say, well, I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this and that, this and this and that. Nobody ever mentions the rest between the action. Nobody ever says, I did this, then I rested. Then I did that, and then I rested. Nobody mentions the rest, even though it's naturally there. The Shankaracharya says, allow yourself the luxury of a little interval of rest between desires, and ultimately enlarge it for up to five minutes. That's his advice. The next aid is good company. All human beings have desires. And all human beings have good desires. And all human beings have bad desires. But the company you keep greatly determines the desires which arise in your heart. If you don't keep company with Nazis, it's unlikely that anti-Semitism will arise. But if you do, it might. If one keeps good company, then only good desires will manifest. Good company are the thoughts and the feelings in your mind. That's the greatest company we keep. Thoughts and feelings in our own mind and heart. But it also is other people, environment, the literature we read or the music we listen to. They are all productive of the arising of desires. And the last is to promote the desire for liberation or freedom in oneself. In this way one brings all desires under one so that all one's desires are facing the same direction. This way man is not pulled hither and thither, but every desire in his body, mind and heart is used to pursue freedom, total and complete freedom. Now to bring this to an end, we had mentioned earlier that there is this higher state, the highest state, which was called the true waking state which is available to every man and woman. But so far we've been just talking about the reduction or purification of desire. But this fourth state is a desireless state. Not the desireless state of deep sleep, but the desireless state of full wakefulness. And in it, neither ignorance nor desire rule the man. But he is moved by reason and love. And reason and love are not personal, but universal. Therefore he's not moved according to his own will. And not being moved according to his own will, he fulfills the word, thy will be done. 
or not my will, but thy will. The Shankaracharya says of such a man who has attained a desireless state, who moves simply through reason and love, he says, for him, the whole creation is a family. He treats everyone with love and affection. He wishes to impart bliss to everyone. He wants to see everyone in bliss, everyone healthy, and everyone availing freedom. And Jesus tells us how to attain this state. He tells us many times, but he tells us once in the Sermon of the Mount. So if I can just quote it, and hear these words in the light of what we have been considering. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles see. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. These words it practised lead to that desireless state which one enjoys limitless peace. And Krishna, to take from a different tradition, in speaking to Arjuna, he describes a man who has attained such a state. He says, and I just lead into it, when a man dwells on the objects of sense, he creates an attraction for them. Attraction develops into desire and desire breeds anger. Anger induces delusion, delusion loss of memory. Through loss of memory, reason is shattered, and loss of reason leads to destruction. But the self-controlled soul who moves among sense objects, free from either attachment or repulsion, 
he wins eternal peace. Having attained peace, he becomes free from misery. For when the mind gains peace, right discrimination follows. And right discrimination is not for him who cannot concentrate. And without concentration, there cannot be meditation. And he who cannot meditate must not expect peace. And without peace, how can anyone expect happiness? As a ship at sea is tossed by the tempest, so the reason is carried away by the mind when preyed upon by the straying sense. Therefore, O mighty in arms, he who keeps his senses detached from their objects, taketh that his reason is purified. The saint is awake when the world sleeps, and he ignores that for which the world lives. He attains peace, into whom desires flow as rivers into the ocean, which though brimming with water remains ever the same, not he whom desire carries away. He attains peace, who, giving up desire, moves through the world without aspiration, possessing nothing which he can call his own and free from pride. O Arjuna, this is the state of the self, the Supreme Spirit, to which if a man once attain, it shall never be taken from him. Even at the time of leaving the body, he will remain firmly enthroned there and will become one with the eternal. So to end this, if we are to have a desire, let this be our desire, the desire for complete freedom under nothing. That's it. Thanks. Well, what questions would you like to ask? I just noticed there seem to be many more women than men here. So in the context of philosophy, does that tell us anything? think there is any greater love of truth in uh, a woman as opposed to a man or any lesser all human beings desire to know and to live forever and to be permanently happy but I am not going to speculate as to why more <laughs> than men there's no football on tonight so that ruins that theory I only didn't desire in this life we're not actually we make them up ourselves. But we think we are. Yes. The desire comes from the belief that you are your body and your mind. You create a separate identity, which is limited. And by creating this separate limited identity, you have a desire for completeness, because that is your nature.
And in order to attain that completeness, you create a desire for things that you think will make you complete. So you look for objects to adorn the body or keep it young or make it more attractive or house it and all sorts of things like that. And the same way you look after the mind or the mind stroke heart. And all your desires are basically feeding the machine. This body-mind machine. It's like bringing in a, a tiny little puppy. And a couple of years later, this monster's dragging you around the place. Well, that's what it's like. I mean, if you didn't have to care for this thing, think how much free time you'd have. <laughs> so, it's because of that identification... It's a combination of identifying with the body and the mind and a memory that you are much, much more than your body and a mind. And that memory, that a deep sort of unspoken memory, that you are in fact eternal, knowing and blissful. And yet you're faced with this limited body and limited mind. Sets you out in a search to find that completeness again. But the error is you think you will find it via the body and the mind. And what all the master teachers have said, no, you don't find it in the body and the mind. You find it deep within yourself. So Jesus would have said the kingdom of God is within you and others say different things. But all pointing to something within which doesn't partake of the body and the mind, which doesn't die when the body dies. And that actually has no needs, no desires. It is perfectly happy. And evidence of this or indication of it is that in sleep when there is no identification with the body and mind you enjoy bliss so the trick for man if you want to call it a trick is how does he find that same non-identification when he's awake if he can only find the same non-identification when he's awake he will enjoy the same well in fact far far greater bliss and freedom as was enjoyed in the deep sleep state. And we have experience of that. We have experience of what it's like when you are totally identified. And the misery that causes and the limitations it brings. So, you know, we've used these examples before, but if you arrive at a dinner dance and you're late, and say in your case it's your husband's fault that you're late, and your table is across the dance floor, nobody's dancing, it's an acre dance floor, right? And, and your husband slams the door and you go through the door. So everybody looks up and you have to walk across this dance floor with everybody looking at you. The misery it brings. You think you're a walker across a dance floor. Which is a pretty pathetic entity. It has a lifespan of about five minutes. <laughs> but you think you are that. And you desire to be a perfect walker across a dance floor. <laughs> but you have a limited body. <laughs> Which does not exhibit perfect walking. So you suffer. Say you brought a child to the dinner dance. And he or she had to walk across the dance floor. This walk. I mean, the nappy can start to fall off. It makes no difference at all. <laughs> they end up carrying it, you know. But they're totally free. I'm not advocating that for an adult. <laughs> I, 
simply what is advocated is the same freedom. Same freedom. And it is possible. It is possible. But it's like everything else. If I say to you, give me a fiver for something. You say, show me the something. You say, I'm not handing over the fiver until I see the something. And I want to judge for myself that it's worth more. Now what philosophy says, there is something beyond body and mind. And everybody says, well, okay, show me. Well, it can't be shown to you. You can only experience it yourself. And if people do experience this transcendent aspect of man, then they start to, we call it, feed that or attend to that. And then the care of the body and the mind falls into its natural sort of proportions. I mean, the body has to be cared for. The wise man or woman does not neglect the body. It still needs its food and sleep and all these things, but according to a measure. And because we identify, we lose that measure. And most of our life is spent looking after this body-mind. Now, and again, we just take it from within Christianity, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else will be added unto you. Now, we don't trust that. Once I get the other things into shape, then I'll see if there is something beyond. But it can't be done like that. The body will not set you free. If you feed it at 9 o'clock, it's hungry again at 12 o'clock. Wash your hair on a Tuesday, you have to wash it again on a Thursday at least. It ages on you. It gets cranky and old and arthritic and all sorts of things. At least you can put the dog down. <laughs> There's a happy note. Yeah. Yes. I think there's a difference between letting your desires go to passion and repressing them, which is open Sometimes Absolutely. Well, suppressing them will always be accompanied by tension. The analogy that's often used is, say, an air-filled ball, and you try and suppress it under the water. You have to keep your hand there. It's a constant activity. The minute you let go, the ball bounces up. Now, if you say suppress anger, it will only stay suppressed for so long as you keep it suppressed. What you know, say, in relationships, an awful lot of anger is not dissolved, but simply suppressed. So what people do is they suppress the anger and then they suppress another incident and another incident and another incident and then they gather together about six months of incidents and then they go berserk one day. <laughs> I can't gather six months of incidents because I don't have a good memory but my wife remembers everything. <laughs> but it will always explode. It will always explode because you cannot maintain that's suppression. So suppression is always accompanied by anger and resentment. But letting go is accompanied by peace, release. So you'll always know whether you have let go. If you haven't let go, it'll come back to haunt you.
again and again and again. Does that help at all? Yes, so it keeps coming back to the Yes, exactly. There are many ways of getting rid of habit. You can get rid of habit through love. So, say I drank too heavily. And my wife said to me, look, it absolutely upsets me that you, you drink so heavily. Out of love for her or her happiness, one could give up the drink. So love would be the motivation there. It might not be love at all, it could be reason. The success of drinking is not doing me any good, and one could come to the conclusion it's a waste. Or the other way of doing it, which is the crudest way of doing it, you starve the habit to death. You stop practicing it. You withdraw from the practice of it. And whenever it presents itself to you, you just don't carry it out. And in this way, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and one day it falls away. It's a bit like a scab on your hand. If you just ignore, one day it falls away. falls off. It heals itself by not being interfered with. But the best ways are reason and love. And sometimes love operates and sometimes reason operates. It's a very good question to ask. This desire, is it conducive to my happiness and freedom? When I was a little boy, about aged eight or nine, I was in a boarding school and I saw a young boy biting his nails. And what I noticed about him is that he couldn't stop biting his nails. I just watched them for a while. And he had no control over it. The hand would just go into his mouth and he'd bite away. And I remember thinking, I never want to lose my freedom. I never want not to have the choice about anything. So you can make a decision in life that you will be free that you will never sacrifice your freedom to anything. And if you take that stance, then it becomes very clear which desires take away your freedom and which are conducive to your freedom. So, for example, say as a parent, you can have a desire that your children turn out a particular way. Unfortunately, they have a desire to turn out a different way. <laughs> now, if you hold that desire, it just takes away your freedom. It makes you miserable. The relationship is filled with tension. But if you can drop your desire that they turn out a particular way and simply love them, then you're free. Yes? Why do you think that humans have why do they have the capacity? Because the mind has the capacity to remember and it has the capacity to forget. And it has the capacity to know and it has the capacity to ignore. It's in the nature of the mind. Ultimately, if you pursue that question, you have to ask, like, why are oranges orange and bananas yellow? There's no why. That's the way it is. That's one answer, which is not very satisfactory. And the other equally dissatisfying answer is, well, there's a man called, was called, Ramana Maharshi, who was a teacher from India, died around 1950. And people used to ask him questions like this. 
all the time. So you would have gone down very well with him. <laughs> and he used to say, find out the truth about yourself and see if the question still remains. You see, we don't know the truth about ourselves and we're asking the questions. So the answers are being received by somebody who doesn't know the truth about themselves. And he used to always say, the only question really is, who am I? Who am I or what am I? In truth. He said, answer that question and all the questions are answered. So as I said, it's equally dissatisfying. <laughs> yes? Would, would you draw a distinction between a desire that we are attached to as against the same desire of another person who is not attached to the outcome? What I'm sure they get up when we're born in this life, as young people, we, we need to get an education. We have to earn money to survive. We get up out of bed in the morning because we just have a desire to get up out of bed in the morning. It's this sort of thought process that there's good desire and bad desire. Uh, it's more, are we attached to the outcome or are we not attached to the outcome? We see that as being a key point as against desire just in itself, which seems we all have. Well, there are desires which are natural and they operate. So there are desires for food and drink and all these sort of things. And they will operate whether you're a wise man or not. They will simply operate. And they should be allowed to operate because it's natural. But when you start saying there's a need to earn money, well, that's not an absolute statement. It's not an absolute statement. No. Well, as a human being, I would have an obligation to earn money. Why? To survive, to, to, to perhaps to a family. Uh... Well, why not be so lovable that others will take care of you? <laughs> That's what I'm practicing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm starving to death. <laughs> You don't have to. You don't have to. What you need to do is to serve others. That doesn't mean you have to earn money. It may mean it, and the majority probably will. But not everybody. Not everybody has to earn money. There are very few have-tos in life. Most of them are related to the body have to have an education. Again, I'm just taking another man. Ramakrishna, who died around 18... something or 1870, let's say, something like that. He couldn't read or write. Why do you need to read or write? If you're blissfully happy, why do you need to read or write? find out whether others are happy by talking the spoken word uh, conveys an awful lot more than the written word these have to's we impose these on ourselves 
we think I have to have a house and I have to have a wife or I have to have a husband or I have to have children and I have to have savings and I have to have a pension scheme I have to have all sorts of things well who told you you have to would you advise this for any other creature if you could talk to the dog would you say to him look why don't you invest in a second kennel If you said to the dog, I think you need holidays abroad, <laughs> what do you think he'd say? <laughs> Our lives are so complicated. statement than I have to work not all have to work and not all should work absolutely then work there's nothing wrong with work it's absolutely delightful but having to having to puts an unnecessary burden on working when children offer to do the washing up they don't have to work they just work You can't remember that pleasure. Or it's a distant memory, anyway. It wasn't last night when you were doing the washing up. It would never cross your mind as an adult to let's do them again. <laughs> and you know why? Because you think you have to work. And when you have to work, you try and minimize it. And you try and take the pain out of it. So you invent all sorts of gadgets to reduce the work. But then you have to work to buy the gadgets, <laughs> to pay for them. How do you quantify work? You're saying washing the dishes would be a novelty if we never wash them. Sound have to. No, if you drop the sound have to. Yeah. That's all. The have to is just such a terrible burden. You say, I have to meet my mother this weekend. It's a way down sort of emotion. Well, you don't have to. Just visit your mother this weekend. It's a completely different thing than having to. Never give up your freedom. When man believes he has to work, he thinks he's free when he's finished the dishes. Oh, I'm free. <laughs> Let's say the dishes take 20 minutes or something like that. To forego your freedom for 20 minutes... It's a disaster. Why shouldn't you be free while doing the dishes? And free after the dishes and free before the dishes? Why not remain free all the time? That's the possibility. You don't have to like them. Have to. <laughs> when you start imposing that you must like or dislike, you're in deep trouble. Again, I just take from the Christian tradition, Christ didn't say, you must like all your neighbours. That's impossible. 
they don't make neighbours like that anymore. (laughs) But the instruction is to love your neighbours. It is possible to love everybody, but to like everybody is impossible. And when you love, then it doesn't make any difference what you like or dislike. All of that is forgotten in the emotion of love. And this is a marvellous thing about love. If you say to me, do I like walking in the rain? The answer is no. But if there's love in my heart and I'm walking with my wife, I don't care whether it's rainy or sunny. It's irrelevant. That's the marvellous thing about love. It makes everything irrelevant. Otherwise, how could you love two children equally? They're completely different. But their differences are irrelevant. And that's how you love them equally. Thank God for that, because some of us would be in deep trouble otherwise. (laughs) Yes? It's a deserved contentedness and major attitude. It's ultimately an impediment. The desire that one gave at the very end of the lecture, the desire for liberation, let that be the desire, the desire for freedom or liberation. That is advised in order to bring all other desires under its umbrella so that they all support that desire. Now, ultimately, it's an impediment. But the analogy that's used is that you use a thorn to remove a thorn and then throw both away. You can imagine if you had a thorn in your hand and you used another thorn to remove it. And then, having done that job, you throw both away. Another analogy would be, say, counting sheep to go asleep. This is not within my experience, but anyway. What people do is they count sheep in order to forget everything else. But if you don't stop counting sheep, you'll be up to three or four billion and wide awake. (laughs) Having got the mind to only be counting sheep and have forgotten everything else, then you must stop counting the sheep. So the desire for contentment will guide the human being as regards all other desires, but in the end, even that has to go. For most people, our only experience of this total and complete surrender, where there are no conditions, is when we go to sleep. What you know is when you're just about to drift off, there is no sense of, I must sleep well tonight. This is a precondition to me sort of going off. We actually drop everything. And in that total and complete surrender, we go asleep. If we retain one condition, you can't go asleep. So that desire for contentment is exactly the same. If you wish to be content, you have to drop the final desire, i.e. the desire to be content. But it's very useful up to a point, because it guides all the other desires. Does that answer? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I understand what you're saying, but if you look back ten years ago, we were in a different world where things were easier to that philosophy. You just have to look at the health care today, would say for the elderly, and the care is not there in the communities any longer. You know, we talk about pensions and all those kind of things, but the reality is you have to look to see that they are okay in order to survive in a world that we live in today, because it's very materialistic. I know where you're coming from. 
yes, but man's happiness is not dependent on a pension. But if you haven't covered for the things that you need to provide for your future, always say for your children growing up, you have to make some provision. I know I'm using the word have to. I hear it. (laughs) Well, how do you know you have to? Well, just looking at what happens when people don't, I see it every day. But how do you know you have to? Forget about other people. Well... How do you know you have to? I don't know. No, you don't. But that's the point. That's the interesting thing is, none of us know our futures. And we're all acting today as if we do know our futures. I haven't a clue whether I'm going to be alive tomorrow. What are all the plans for? It's a guessing game. Again, another Indian sage made a marvellous point. He said, we all want to control our lives. And he says, uh, the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. How about that for a scary thought? (laughs) You haven't a clue. You might like to marry, but you can't make somebody marry you. They don't allow this sort of riding up on a white horse anymore. (laughs) You can't make anybody love you. You do all sorts of fancy tricks and they still won't love you. You can't make your partner live. You can't make this heart beat. You do nothing. But we all speculate as if we do know. And it's based on fear. And we think longevity is an advantage. How do you know longevity is an advantage? Maybe the idea is to get out of this early. I had a friend who became a comedian. He was very depressed when I knew him anyway. And uh, that's probably why he became a comedian. His definition of hell was another go on earth. How do you know this isn't hell? And how do you know death won't be the release from hell? Maybe it's much better without a body. You picked up on the half two I understand that. I asked the question initially a distinction between the desire which you're attached to and one that you're not attached to. Yes. No, very good. On the point here, if you view this universe as being one entity, there isn't the separation of bodies between the individuals in this world. There is the oneness of creation. There is compassion. It's within us the compassion and care after the elder. We don't have to be attached to the outcome of it. Oh no, exactly. The human being is naturally compassionate naturally but what is important is that it's compassion under knowledge and not compassion under ignorance there's always this choice compassion under ignorance is like when somebody who's miserable comes to you and tells you their story and you start to feel miserable out of compassion for them so now you have two miserable people 
Whereas compassion under wisdom is where you're moved by the misery of the other to relieve the misery in the other. And that's the choice, to be moved by ignorance or moved by not. And it all happens absolutely naturally. And to take up your first point, it's not the desires which are the trouble, it's the attachment to them. I don't know if that was the point that you were trying to make. So you're absolutely right. The attachment to them is the problem, not the desire itself. Yes? Sorry, just before that last asked a question, you were leading on to something, or I just have to be interested to find out your views on when Shakespeare referred to life as a play. Yes. Um, desire seems to play a very big part in the soap opera of our lives, and withdrawing from that seems to be very much the answer. So this would all suggest, along with saying that the actual outcome is not really under our control, how do you view the overall picture? How does that fit in? Drawing back is only drawing back mentally and emotionally, not physically. It's not drawing back like going off to a cave somewhere. The drawing back mm. is taking the attachment out of it. And to take Shakespeare, he said, all the world's a stage. That's a very, very true statement. This is a stage. You're playing the part of a listener and I'm playing the part of a speaker. And if we both play the parts, it's all very enjoyable. The trick is, is to play your part without forgetting who you are. But you're not the scriptwriter. The actor on the stage doesn't write the script. The words are given to him. But an actor can put in his own words. He can ignore the script. But there are words there. Now, for example, say when giving a talk, the thing is not to come into the room with a set of answers. The idea is, is to hear the question and let the question draw the answer. The question produces the answer. So it's not in that sense, then, your script. Does that make sense at all? Uh, is that the point that you are raising? A very dissatisfied... Mm. <laughs> make, make the point again. The idea of, like Shakespeare suggested, that someone was watching this play. Yes. And when you look at life, when you look at people's desires, it plays out like a soap opera. Absolutely. You know, when you, you know, if you just, if you detach yourself. Yes. And I suppose you did answer my question. It's just like that detachment, pulling away from it and looking at it rather than getting involved in it. Yes, you see, the somebody who's looking at this play is you. Are you aware of the body? The answer is yes. One could be aware of the body. You're aware whether it's tall, small, all sorts of things. Can you be aware of the mind? Yes, you can. You can say, my mind is very um, confused. Now, how could you say that with absolute certainty unless you were aware of it? 
Because if your mind was confused and you were your mind, you'd have to be confused about whether it was confused. <laughs> but in fact, you're absolutely clear it is confused. Some of you can confirm that right now. <laughs> A total certainty as regards confusion. So there is an awareness of confusion which doesn't participate in confusion. And there's an awareness of the state of the heart, so that the heart is either depressed or elated. But the awareness is not elated or depressed. It's actually aware of elation or depression. You are the witness. And that witness is unaffected by the body, mind and heart. That's what philosophy says. There is something in you which is beyond all this. It is the witness of it. It enjoys it all, but is untouched by it all. Free of it all. That is who you truly are. And when this is known, then life unfolds. But it doesn't have to unfold in a particular way. Take a very simple thing. Let's say if you knew you were eternal, would anything bother you? I was in France about ten years ago, and I'd taken a particularly long holiday, which is a disastrous thing to do because your mind speculates as to what's going on back home in business. And the mind fed on this, and I was thinking about the overdraft and whether clients would stay and where money would come from next year. This is mid-June now, and I was worried about next year, where the money would come from. And I was reading a book, which is called The Supreme Yoga. And in this book, which advocated reincarnation, it had in the book a story about an empress whose husband had died, and she grieved. Because she loved her husband so much, she prayed to the god of death, to reunite her with her husband. So anyway, her prayers were so sincere, the god of death appeared to her. And he said, in fact, the truth of the matter is, you've already been married to this man six times. In previous lives, you were you know, woodcutters once, and you were a, a prince another time, and all sorts of things. And one time you had five children, and they all died in the plague, and another time you had no children, and another time they all went to Australia, and all sorts of things like this. <laughs> and it laid out about six embodiments. And it said, and by the way, you will be married to him in the future again. Pretty close relationship, this one now. Right? <laughs> you will be married to him again. And I thought, you know, if this is true, if I am eternal, what has an overdraft in one embodiment got to do with it? <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just so irrelevant. So I really, really, really enjoyed the rest of my holiday. <laughs> You know, our view of ourselves is so tiny. And all the wise say something else. Yes? Um, it, it occurs to me that this philosophy of spirituality we're talking about here may lead into a particular view of the man of death, like, for example, Peter. Is that, can you elaborate with if you answer the question, who am I or what am I, then all your questions are answered. If you move down from that, there are some pretty fundamental questions that you have to ask. And maybe we just deal with this. 
you basically have three choices as regards... Well, you've got four choices, actually. You could say, I don't exist. So that's one possibility. But you sort of ruin it by saying, I don't exist. <laughs> so mo most people don't hang on to that theory for very long. So you then narrow it down to three possibilities. And the three possibilities are, I began when the body was conceived or within a certain period of time after that. But I go on forever. That's one possible theory. The other one is, I began a conception and I cease to be when the body dies. And the third possibility is, I always was, am, and always will be. So you've got to make up your mind. And I'm just going to use this then little analogy to help with it. Being an artist was a forgotten calling for me. <laughs> if you can imagine a scene where a young boy is with his mother and he sees a fish leap out of the water and disappear back into the water and he comments to his mother that fish had a very short lifespan. It only existed for five seconds. And the mother says, no, that's not true. The fish appeared at a certain point and disappeared five seconds later. But appearance and disappearance are not the same as existence and non-existence. This is a very wise mother now. <laughs> and she says, you must not confuse appearance with existence and disappearance with non-existence. She said, there was existence and no appearance and then there was existence and appearance, and then there was existence and disappearance. You know, he's also pretty clever. He says, yes, but how do you know? How do you know that that fish just didn't come into existence when it appeared and ceased to exist when it disappeared? One of those horrible little children, right? <laughs> they, uh, and her only answer can be, because I know the life of a fish. So the question for you is, do you know your own life? And depending on which answer you come to, that I began a conception and I will cease to be and death, you will live a particular life and you will have particular values. And if it is I began a conception and I live forever you will also have a different life and different values. And if you come to the answer that you are eternal, then you will have a completely different set of values and will have a completely different life. And the question is, can man know, while he is embodied, his true existence? Can he know about prior to conception and can he know about after the falling of the body? And the wise say that you can And it's such a big question, it's worth having to look at. <laughs> Do you think there's, uh, I mean, the, the general tendency in the West, in Western capitalism, has been uh, for many years to disregard the environment and to, to live for immediate material gain to a large degree? Do you see a connection between 
viewing the fish as like having a five-second lifespan, basically, and, and promoting this, this kind of disregard for, for the climate, etc. Absolutely. The more man identifies with his body, the more materialistic he becomes. The more materialistic he becomes, the shorter his viewing point. Again, we'll just take a sort of a humorous example, and I'm not degrading dogs, I hope, when I say this. But if you put down a bowl of PAL and the Irish Times in front of the dog, you won't find him reading the sports pages first and then eating. He is totally and completely identified with his body. If you say, look, the stock market, you want to take a look at your investments, <laughs> he's not the least interested. In fact, the minute you bring that food, he totally and completely ignores you. He's just in that bowl. Now, that is because, for a dog, the vast majority of his consciousness is identified with his body. And if you said to the dog, could you not just wait a few minutes? <laughs> you will never get the dog to do that. Once you put the food... He eats. If man identifies with his body, he wants instant pleasure. He doesn't care about the future. He will not plant trees for the next generation. He will not design houses and buildings and lay out his cities for the next generation. He does terrible things. When people in a hundred years' time look at this generation they will not thank us they will not thank us for our music and our architecture and all these things they will be dumbfounded by what we did or do man has to find out the truth about himself and when he finds out the truth about himself then he will care for this creation all the scriptures say it, but the Bible says man uh, was given dominion over all the animals of this universe. All of them. They're under his care. The state of this earth is directly related to man. The state of all creatures on this earth are directly related to man. So man has a very, very big job. He needs to go beyond himself. And needs to go beyond his immediate family. In days of old, you used to look seven generations ahead. You laid the foundations for seven generations ahead. Think of how a farmer, well, it probably still does, but certainly definitely used to, would ensure that the land was left to the next generation in proper condition. Farmer in days of old could not have destroyed the land because he knew the next generation would need it. And one last happy question. Is there somebody? Yes. Yes. Well, it's like this the present moment only presents so much. And man is quite capable of dealing with whatever arises in the present moment. If he starts to live into the future, what he does is, through imagination, he exaggerates the burden of the day. So, again, and just to use two simple analogies. One is, if I say to you, is an apple nutritious? 
unless you've got an allergy to apples, you say, yes, apples are nutritious. If I ask you to swallow an apple whole, great big apple, whole, it'll kill you. So an apple will kill you if it's swallowed whole, but if it's eaten according to measure, it will nourish the body. And it is sufficient for man to live today, today. There's enough in it to occupy him. He doesn't have to live tomorrow, today. And we're always doing this. When you're driving from A to B, you're planning what you're going to say and do at B. On that basis, some people never arrive. They hit the wall. Because they were planning what they were going to say when they arrived. This is why Christ said over and over again, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Now, if I said to you, Do you think... A mother's love is a great thing. You say to me, yes, a mother's love for her child is a great thing. And would a mother, a true mother, ever neglect the needs of the child? The answer is no. She's ever watchful and ever careful to provide for the true needs of the child. Do you think that a mother's love could be greater than God's love for all that he has created? And if a mother will care for a child, will God not care for everybody? And a child trusts his mother, absolutely trusts it. When it's a tiny little thing, and there's this mushy thing on a spoon, being inserted in its mouth, it doesn't say, let me read the label. <laughs> Are you sure this will make my bones strong? It doesn't say anything like that. It just sits there. When it's in the back of the car, it doesn't say, where are we going? <laughs> Do you know where you're going? <laughs> I think you're lost. <laughs> it just sits there. In fact, it doesn't put any conditions on the mother's driving. The mother can be a maniac of a driver. And it's just you know, in the back seat. And the mother can be going around Stephen's Green in circles. And the child doesn't care. Because it trusts its mother. Now, as a child, you trust your mother. And as an adult, you won't trust God. That's an amazing thing for a human being to do. Because if you're not going to trust God, what are you going to trust? Who are you going to place your trust in? It's another question that man has to ask. Is he going to trust this ego, which is full of desires, which changes its mind, which lies to itself? Is that what he's going to trust? Well, you have to put your trust in something. And it would be a good thing to find out if there is a God. Then you could sleep soundly every night and wake up full of joy every morning. So, we'll end up with that. Thank you.